Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. I think that there are many cases where the interests of insurers and the interests of charities are or can be aligned when it comes to the prevention or restitution of harm. So insurance tends to be about using financial levers to return things to a prior state after an event. And charity would rather stop the event from happening in the first place. And environmental charities are really in that space very firmly. We'd rather avoid environmental catastrophes than make good afterwards, very obviously. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Rob George and we will be discussing the ways in which insurance can enable environmental and conservation work. Rob is the Head of Corporate Governance and Risk at the RSPB, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, which is the UK's largest nature conservation charity with over a million members, including me, I should add, in a spirit of full disclosure. The RSPB is involved in dozens of projects across the country and around the globe, many of which would not be possible without insurance. And that's what we're here to discuss. But just to be clear, Rob is not speaking on behalf of the RSPB in this podcast. His views are his own. So, Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And you did a classics degree um, kind of many moons ago, um, followed by further study in, in the humanities. So how on earth did you get from there to the RSPB? Uh, yeah, that was quite a long time ago. Um, I think it's been a perpetual quest, I'd say, uh, to understand how the world fits together. And I know it's not one I shall ever succeed in, but I'm constantly curious about how the world works. That's more of a philosophical view, but um, in more detail, I started with a humanistic education, if you like, uh, and then I moved into digital publishing in the 1990s and then into traditional academic publishing. And all the time I was doing that, I was growing my knowledge of social sciences and technology and then ended up for a while marketing economics and law and then later politics as well. And then I joined the RSPB both as a member and as a member of staff. It matched my personal values and gave me the opportunity to be somewhere that could deliver, I thought, and I still believe, it could deliver real change in the world, not just for wildlife, but for the natural world and for people. Initially, my role was around market research, data management, things like that. But subsequently, I became convinced that good governance and transparency was critical to securing support, and support is critical to achieving the mission of the charity. And so I moved more into a governance role and then risk and operational effectiveness. I'm still learning about the RSPB and still learning about the world and still trying to to help line up the lever and the fulcrum and the place to stand, if you know the quote, going back to my classical roots. Indeed, a little bit little bit of Archimedes. You need the lever and the fulcrum and the place to stand and you can move the world. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This podcast is listened to um, around the world, so we, we probably need to do a short introduction about the RSPB itself. So, so what, what is it? And in general terms, what does it do? So RSPB does nature conservation from start to finish is the the headline. So we monitor to review the state of a species. Birds are really easy to see and to count because they're around in the daytime. They're sort of an appropriate size for humans to see. They aren't too small. And so they're, they're reasonably easy to count. And that means you can see if the numbers are going up or going down. We have a science program that understands where there are losses, what the drivers of those loss are, and what sort of responses might work to arrest the decline and to grow again. Uh, 
And then we have projects to test out those responses, those interventions, and then demonstrate the interventions that actually work. And that might be around farming practices or coastal management or all sorts of things. We have nature reserves that protect some of the most precious places for wildlife, particularly in the UK, where we have over 200 reserves. The largest of those I looked up the other day is about 21,000 hectares. So these are not small pieces of land. They're areas where you can work on an entire ecosystem. Then we have engagement activities that draw on and then build public interest and public concern. We've got over a million members. And then we have advocacy work that uses the strength of that million members to ensure that nature's voice is heard in policy and planning at government level in particular. And then we've got partnerships within the UK and then beyond the UK, particularly beyond the UK, because there are vulnerable migration routes. So birds move up the eastern Atlantic from southern Africa through West Africa, the Mediterranean, British Isles into the Arctic and then back again. And across that migration route, there are going to be vulnerabilities. In terms of size, uh, we have about 2,000 paid staff, around, I think it's 18,000 volunteers, and a net charitable expenditure of around £100 million a year. Also being a charity, we have to raise that sort of money every year in order to continue with our work. So as I said, conservation from start to finish, science, delivery, advocacy. And what does your role as head of corporate governance and risk actually involve? So I support the RSPB's trustees through managing and developing the governance system and helping them use that governance system. Trustees have ultimate accountability for a charity, and we're a large and complicated charity, as we just discussed. So helping them to manage their accountability means also having a mature and effective risk management system. So they delegate responsibility through to the staff, but they need assurance back that the organization is operating within a safe envelope. And we use the three lines model to provide them with that assurance. And then because I take an overall view of risk profile and our risk management system and our residual risk, I'm really well placed to oversee our insurance arrangements, including doing things like spotting uninsured risks or potentially overinsured risks where we have good, good responses in place to manage our exposure. And we're going to look at kind of the interrelationship of uh, the RSPB with insurance on, on a number of different levels. And in particular, we're going to look at a couple of projects in a moment, which are only possible because of the involvement of insurance. But first of all, in very general terms, what sort of insurances do you purchase on an annual basis? As you'd expect, uh, we purchase things like public liability, employee liability, travel insurance, directors and offices insurance, fleet as well, um, which you'd expect. But we have also got cover for cyber risk, which is something that many organisations are taking up now. But there are some more unexpected areas, livestock, farming, managing land often means managing them through using farming techniques, which means we have livestock and all of the machinery and and, uh, fodder and things that's associated with that. We have cover for small craft, marine, air cargo. I think we might talk about that again in a little while. In a moment, yeah might not expect that a conservation organisation has such a wide range of cover. This podcast is obviously looking at life through the lens of insurance. As I've mentioned earlier on, I'm also a member of the RSPB, so I, I would very happily look at it through the lens of nature conservation. But, uh, but th- this podcast is all about insurance. And so I'm keen to highlight the things that the insurance, insurance makes stuff happen. Kind of hashtag insurance makes stuff happen. Um, and, and the things that insurance can enable. So could you talk us through a project in the UK 
where insurance played uh, an essential role? I think there's a there's one project that comes to mind that's a really good way of talking about how insurance plays an enabling role, but also shines a light on how RSBB thinks about the world and delivers work. So it's a good way to get insight in general. And I'm going to talk about a project in Essex, uh, Wallasey Island, to be specific. But stepping back a little bit, the EU Birds and Habitats Directive, which has been in place for quite a long time and is enshrined in UK law as well, essentially places obligations on member states that plan to develop sensitive areas for economic benefit, not to ruin those sensitive habitat areas to gain an economic advantage over other member states. In other words, that means that if you want to develop, for example, a new port in the UK, as has happened recently, there needs to be the designation of compensatory habitat to make up for that loss. So the port on the River Medway that was developed in Kent needed some land to be designated elsewhere to be restored to an equivalent state. So RSPB agreed to exercise an option that this created to purchase and then restore a large area of land in Essex, which is just near the coast between the rivers Crouch and Roach, if anyone knows the area. And that meant not only purchasing the land, but putting in place either really complicated hydrological engineering so that it would be restored as a wetland, but not flooded and not dried out, or as an alternative, raising the level of the land. And it's a large piece of land. And this is a real insight into the RSPB. So we decided that we wanted to raise the level of the land. And that meant we needed at least 6 million cubic meters of clay for the first stage of this at least which I think would, I can't remember how many Wembley stadiums worth of clay that is, but it's a lot. (laughs) But both options, the hydrological one and raising land level, needed in excess of £20 million to do the project, which is beyond what we would normally consider possible from the perspective of the RSPB. Having decided to raise the level of the land, we structured an arrangement with Crossrail, to take the soil that was being excavated from the Elizabeth line that's tunnelling under London, get it floated down the Thames on barges, and then spread onto the land at Wallasey to bring the level up to where it needed to be. So effectively treating that piece of land as landfill and using the revenue from landfill tax to pay for the project. So this is quite a complicated arrangement uh, with many parties involved, all working together. But one element of this is getting the clay off the barges onto the land. And to do that needed a huge elevator come conveyor belt arrangement to take this enormous weight up off the barges and spread it out over the land. And at the end of the project, the conveyor stayed on the land and became our property. So that creates a liability. Large amounts of machinery on land with public access creates a considerable liability. So we knew at the very beginning, until this was dismantled, this would be a problem. Our experience with the different and rather unusual forms of cover gave us the confidence that we would be able to go ahead with the project when we were envisaging it, because we would be able to protect ourselves against the liability that the whole thing created, including the, the massive conveyor belt. That's an example of how we work in the UK. Yeah. And if people are interested in in seeing that project, then there are a couple of YouTube videos um, on it and you you get to see the conveyor belt as well as some lovely images of Brent geese, um, if that's your preference. 
I was there the day that we finally broke the seawall down to let the, the water into the raised land and the number of diggers and dumper trucks that had to be there, nicely coordinated, all at the same time was astonishing. Yeah. An exciting day as well, sort of like a, a topping out party if it, were, if it were a building. But the RSPB's projects, I mean, lots of people will probably think of the RSPB as, as, a, as a UK charity, um, which it is and that most of its projects are are restricted to the UK, and I guess most of the projects probably are. Um, but as you've already mentioned, many of our birds migrate from various other countries. We also have uh, responsibilities as overseas territories. So the RSPB is involved a lot in, in overseas projects as well. So could you talk us through one of the overseas projects that, uh, that the RSPB is involved in and which required a lot of insurance assistance? Yeah, so um, indeed, the UK overseas territories are something that we think about quite a lot. We've got projects in many countries, including the UK overseas territories, and they tend to be, of their nature, somewhat remote. So taking the remotest example, or almost the remotest example, a project we have on Gough Island that's live right now. Gough Island is in the South Atlantic, about midway between South Africa and Brazil. It's an important site for breeding birds, particularly albatrosses, uh, but other birds too. About, I think it's about 2 million chicks each year are threatened because there are mice on the island that were introduced by accident through passing ships, etc. They're not native to the island, but the colonies of mice have grown up there. And the albatrosses have never met mice before, so they don't know, the chicks don't know what they are. And um, there are some really distressing videos on YouTube of what happens when hungry mice encounter innocent little albatross chicks. To secure the future for the species that depend on Gough Island does mean eradicating the mice. To do that, you need to spread poisoned bait very carefully across the island. To do that, the island's pretty mountainous, you need to drop the bait from hoppers suspended under helicopters. So you've got to fly the helicopters over the island with these bait hoppers underneath them. To get helicopters to an island in the middle of the South Atlantic is a bit of a challenge. It means putting the helicopters and the project team on ships, and there aren't many ships that can make this voyage, but on ships that come out of South Africa, including the pilots who can fly with bait cages in South Atlantic weather conditions, and there aren't many of those around. So this meant arranging a project for, part of this was involving getting New Zealand pilots to fly South African helicopters over UK territories to drop poison bait with monitoring teams and vets and bait loaders all on the island at the same time. It's not easy. So it's a partnership between several governments, several conservation organisations and a very generous set of funders. The insurance requirements are pretty bespoke. So it's not just marine and air cargo, which I mentioned earlier on, but things like abandonment insurance. So we were concerned about whether we'd have enough flying days to get the project done in a season given the conditions that you get in the South Atlantic. And we needed to be able to at least claw back some of the costs if we had to give up during the year of operation because of the weather conditions. So we had abandonment insurance when we tried first during 2020. And of course, in 2020, we got sort of halfway to the island and then COVID restrictions meant that we were not going to be able to complete the project. So we did in fact trigger the abandonment insurance. We had to repatriate those people who were already on the island and take them back to the various places in the world from which they had come during the early stages of the pandemic. 
happy to say that we're out there right now in the Atlantic trying again in 2021. And we could not have done that without the right cover in place. And it really took quite a lot of work for our brokers and for others to get that cover appropriate to the project. And hopefully this work will result in the protection of the critically endangered Tristan albatross. I mean, there are other albatrosses as well, aren't there, that nest on Gough Island, but um, I think the Tristan albatross is probably the rarest one. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so so that that's good. So insurance can feel good about itself for uh, for helping out with that. Yeah, it's saving species, literally. <laughs> literally saving species, exactly, exactly. And that's wonderful. And we've discussed what insurance can do specifically for the RSPB in relation to specific risks. And ultimately, that is, of course, what insurance does brilliantly. You know, you, you have a particular risk and you insure in relation to that risk. But let, let's think a little bit wider about the wider role that insurance can play in conservation. And how do you think that insurers can participate more fully in environmental issues? So this is where I'm definitely going to leave my RSBB hat off. Uh, and become a bit more speculative. I think there are some really exciting ways in which there can be contributions made from both sides, but I'm speculating a bit here. Much of what lots of charities do is about identifying harms and the causes of harm and working to address that. And if you think about harms and the benefits from addressing them, hunger, poverty, disease, environmental degradation, There's a lot of work that governments can and do do within the limits of their mandate, and there's work that companies can do where it aligns with shareholder value, and there's work that charities can do. I think that there are many cases where the interests of insurers and the interests of charities are or can be aligned when it comes to the prevention or restitution of harm. So insurance tends to be about using financial levers to return things to a prior state after an event. And charity would rather stop the event from happening in the first place. And environmental charities are really in that space very firmly. We'd rather avoid environmental catastrophes than make good afterwards, very obviously. So the first thing we could think about is how to align our interests and our resources. For example, are there natural solutions available to reduce flood risk, which would align with nature conservation goals while reducing the burden on insurers? We can think of that as financing green in a way. But it's more than just financing. I think there are ways of thinking about how incentives work and for and against risk and how that might play out in premiums to reward positive behaviour that avoids sort of downstream negative effects and how to discourage the negative behaviours that might exacerbate some of the effects that we have. And I think there's a role there for both insurers to play and for some of the natural solutions that might help. So the second thing that just comes to mind is I just mentioned financing green, but also greening finance. So in the investment world, the pace of change around ESG and particularly carbon is accelerating. It's getting quite easy to tell, for example, if your pension portfolio is aligned to the Paris Agreement. In other words, are there carbon assets in the portfolio that drive us beyond the 1.5 degree target, the safe target for warming? So the question is whether institutional assets are also deployed smartly or are they contributing to a set of crises that will in turn actually be more costly to make good. I think financing green and greening finance is a a good headline for that. It is, it is. And you talked about the insurance coming in and sorting things out after the event, which of course is primarily what insurance does. I mean, there are lots of, there's lots of talk at the moment about rewilding, particularly the UK, which is 
Uh, whilst we are a country of of nature lovers by and large, and we we love our David Attenborough programs, we actually kind of over the years our uh, our own habitats have degraded over time, and and unsurprisingly, you know, we've deforested more land, turned them into grouse moors and whatever, and we build it on floodplains and and what have you. And I mean, there's already movements to bring in, for example, reintroduce beavers to help out to slow down river flow which will hopefully reduce floods going on and this is a very long question and I haven't quite worked out in my own mind where I'm going to end up with the question yet but it seems to me if insurance has a far greater role to play or can potentially have a far greater role to play in that prevention angle and working extremely closely with nature conservation agencies to as you say, prevent the environmental crisis happening in the first place? There are certainly areas where a closer working relationship and a better understanding of what good looks like in managing the environment that we depend on and what might be negative might be a benefit to communities, charities, insurers. There's definitely a meeting of minds that we can achieve. And there are definitely ways, I think, in which organisations such as RSPB and others can assist the insurance profession to an extent. So, again, I'm going to leave my RSPB hat off here, but there are going to be projects, there are definitely projects, where conservation organisations have been collecting data around the natural interventions that, that work, that reduce risk. And we have those data for our own purposes. We're, we're science-based organisations quite often, and we, we tend to be good at collecting data And those data may very well have unexpected uses. So could they enhance risk models that the insurance industry is developing? I know there's some super work going on in in the brokerages and indeed in the underwriters to to understand risk models in different ways. What data do we collect that can help add value to that process? There are projects that definitely contribute to reducing risk from fluvial risk, uh, fluvial and, and coastal flood, for example, from wildfire where it isn't just a question of looking at data, you can actually go and visit those projects and see them operating and see how it works. And there's something quite visceral about not just understanding the theory of how it works, but being able to take people out and show how it operates in practice and how there are other societal benefits from getting it right. There's a growing body of research, even into the physical and mental health benefits of nature, up to and including things like quicker recovery times from periods of ill health or reduction in reoffending rates at a more sort of population-wide level. Well, I think we've all understood during the last year of lockdown how important green space is to our well-being. Are there opportunities where what we have in our sector, particularly in the conservation sector, could inform and enhance what you might need in the insurance sector? So you're talking about a much more holistic approach to conservation. And can you see a future where conservation bodies work that closely with insurers in partnership for the benefit of the environment, both in the UK and and across the globe? Actually, I, I don't think I can see a future where it doesn't happen. The question is, how do we learn to speak each other's languages so that we can accelerate the pace of change and we don't sort of miss each other in the dark? I absolutely agree with your your point about taking a holistic approach. And um, I think there are areas where we haven't fully valued some of the assets that we use as a society. And as a result, we might not be using them in the the most sustainable way. We might actually be actively damaging things that we really depend on. And taking that holistic view, 
working together to understand where we have the information, where we have the insights, where we have the understandings is, I think, inevitable. But it would be good if we find ways in which we can speed that up by understanding each other a bit better. And that's a wonderful place to to end, really, this particular podcast. So, Rob, if you were, I appreciate that your background is not insurance, but if you're speaking now to a young person who is in insurance, who's working for an insurer or a broker or, or some other aspect of the insurance world, and they are also interested in the environment, what bit of advice would you give them? Well, I think, Peter, I go back to where we started the conversation and just a bit of a personal reflection. So I think I'm probably a philosopher who's fascinated by economics and politics and who works in a governance role with a passion for nature conservation and driven by wanting to find out how the world all fits together. And I think that all the interesting stuff happens in the overlaps, in the bits that overlap. So if you're working in insurance and you're interested in the environment, then probably take the time to learn about both, to explore both, to find out how to enrich your understanding and your passion and to move from interest to understanding and then see what happens in the overlap, see where it takes you and see what can be achieved in those spaces. Often they are areas that other people aren't necessarily looking at and you've got an opportunity to grow something and make it your own and take some motivation from that and take some satisfaction from it and I think it's very much in staying curious and seeing how your your professional discipline your personal interests can overlap and produce something new absolutely thank you very much indeed Rob that was absolutely superb thank you so much for your time and for your thoughts thank you thank you so much for listening to insurance covered if you enjoyed the podcast please subscribe and please rate review and share it it really does help please also listen to another of our podcasts taxing matters which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.